getting things back. I think that uh, things are beginning to get different and stuff. Can you feel it? Can you hear it? Because I can. I, I can feel it. I can hear it. So thanks to uh, everybody. Now, next Sunday is our last Sunday when David Humberston will be on staff. It may not be his last Sunday with us as a church. They're still looking to God for their future. So they may be in fellowship with us for you know, some time until God signals to them this is the next thing. But next Sunday is their last Sunday on, on staff. And we'd still like to you know, recognize almost six years of incredible service and heart and mentoring and all those copies, Dave. And all those late nights and all those phone calls and all those text messages, uh, you know, we do not pay enough money for the extra mile that goes with ministry. And they've been incredible servants for how first David and Shani, who's disappeared, little Jai, becoming to be a good little Pentecostal preacher. And uh, so next Sunday, we are going to take up a special love offering. The reason why we call it a love offering is because uh, we love them. And uh, so... You know, just wait upon God, you know, do more than just, you know, think what's left in my purse, prepare, believe, ask God for something, and then whatever you put in your heart, God, God will make that up, and <laughs> he'll make that up and stuff, so we'd love to bless him. Is that okay? Is that cool? Fantastic. Now, yesterday, uh, well, on Friday, there's uh, incredible rain and great time at Inspirations Cafe, and went there and sat and had meals with some interesting people. And it's really good. It's great to see John Heather there and little Katie out there having some, uh, what was it, curry, I think it was. Pumpkin soup. It's nice. Uh, then we went down to uh, the prayer retreat down at Fairbridge. And I enjoyed myself. I lost my voice on the night. Uh, Jessica Cox, say, so like kicked some st- things along, didn't you, Jess? Where's Jess? Jess hiding somewhere? She's on welcome. Is she fantastic stuff? Yeah, you know, you've got to watch these shy ones, don't you, Rebecca? <laughs> so some really terrific things happen, and I, I, I really felt in the spirit that we shifted some things, which was fantastic. It was great for me personally, but I think corporately we also saw some really good things happen. And then on Saturday morning, uh, well, most of Saturday, I was invited to be a, an observer at the ALP State Conference. So this, this is an unusual thing as a Pentecostal preacher being an observer at the Australian Labor Party's conference. So there was Julia. She didn't say hello. I don't know why. And uh, a whole bunch of other pollies and stuff. And it, it, it's an interesting world because, you know, there's, there's cameras everywhere and people got different badges, you know. Some people only had the yellow the yellow badge lampard on, which was me as an observer, and you had people with the red ones and the purple ones and the green ones, and those people had all of them and stuff. Uh, so it was an interesting thing to observe just being there. And, uh, but you know one of the incredible things we just heard on the news today is that the Australian Labor Party in Western Australia made it as part of their policy to introduce gay marriage as a part of their platform. And, you know, the fascinating thing about that is that's because there are about 20 people who are very pro-gay who have infiltrated the Australian Labor Party. It's not 2,000. It's not 500. It's only a handful of people, literally a handful of people. And in fact, it's a hand, it wouldn't have got across the, uh, wouldn't have got up unless they did a deal with the anti-uranium people. 
So there were some people there who don't like uranium. By the way, I don't like glowing green in the dark either. So, you know, just to put that on the record. <laughs> Sorry? Well, I just don't like to glow green in the dark. <laughs> I'm not, hey, I'm not making any political statement here. I'm actually trying to make something else underneath of it all, which is really if it wasn't for the fact that there were some people who wanted to ban uranium mining in Australia, doing a deal with the gay homosexual lobby, it wouldn't be a part of policy. That's how skinny it is. And I'm just wondering, you know, where's the Church of Jesus Christ? You know, we can pray and preach and do everything, but if you don't show up, if you don't be salt and light, then it's going to be what it is. May God raise up some people with a real heart, not to be a Christian politician, but to be a Christian in politics and actually to stand up and actually say no to some of these things. So, you know, the world is going to change again, a little bit incrementally, because a few people were very passionate on that. Um, uh, while I was there, I spoke to uh, our local member, um, Antonio Butti, I think is how you meant to say his name. And he's just written a new book on the Nickelberg Affair. Remember the Mickleberg, the Mickelberg Affair? And so um, he gave me one, which was very nice of him, so I'm currently reading it. But one of the interesting things about that particular book, that the greatest theft in West Australian history occurred not at the end of a gun, wasn't someone using force, wasn't a gun, it wasn't an M16, it wasn't a bomb, it wasn't a breaking entry, it was a lie. A piece of paper that was fraudulent. That's all it was. Someone went up, presented a piece of paper, and the Australian Mint handed over $650,000 in gold bullion on the basis of a lie. You know, I think that's such a, an analogy for so much what happens in the area of spiritual warfare. How much do we give up on the basis of a lie believed? See, it's the lie that's believed that's the problem. It's just not the lie. Because if you know it's a lie, it's not a problem. But when the lie is believed, then it is a problem. When we believe the lie that a person, you know, uh, you know, can't help themselves in a particular lifestyle, when we believe the lie that poverty is endemic, you can't change it, when we believe the lies that we buy into by a culture, that unless you dress in a certain clothes, have a certain body shape, you know, all the lies, but it's a lie that's believed that becomes the problem. And so, uh, anyway, that's just some introductory remarks. And I'm trying very hard to reinvent myself in my preaching. So that's part of my stool and uh, wearing my knife. And I'm trying not to tell bad jokes. But I can't help myself. <laughs> Did you hear about all the, the, there was a raid on the Armadale dog pound? Apparently these burglars got in. They let out all the dogs. It's a real problem because currently the police have no leads. Is that bad or what? <laughs> uh, okay, help him, Lord. Help him, Lord. I still don't know why you guys come. I, I, you know, it has to be that because I don't see myself as a. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. You know, that's all I am. I'm a. You know, I think one day you'll actually find out that I make most of this stuff up as I go. Just doing my best. It ain't that good and stuff. But there is Jesus in it all, isn't there? So we're going to talk a little bit about spiritual warfare again. So 
Thanks, guys. We can get the first slide up there. If you're visiting with us for the very first time, uh, we want to give you a very warm welcome. We do actually have a uh, welcome lounge that's uh, out to, through the red doors on your left as you go out there. You'd be very welcome to go in there for uh, some nibblies and some coffee and stuff like that. Hope that you are blessed this morning and you're right in the middle of a uh, series that I'm doing in the area of spiritual warfare. And one of the things I've been saying is that a lot of the things that people uh, have believed about spiritual warfare, have been taught about spiritual warfare, or have been a part of um, maybe uh, you know, their popular culture, the Christian culture about spiritual warfare, just isn't actually very helpful. And so we are drilling down as deep as we can into the actual text of the Bible so that we will know what the Bible actually says. And you think that's okay, don't you? Very good. So put on the full armor of God. So today we're going to talk about another piece of the armor. And next week I am going to show you my knees. I am going to wear Roman armor to church next week. So it's not going to be attractive. So I just want to put a PG rating on it already, okay? Because you will get to see my knees. <laughs> So put on the full armor of God. So uh, just to give a, a quick rerun as to where we're going with this. Uh, next slide, thank you. Um, we want to just make the early observation again. When it comes to spiritual warfare, the devil and demons, we can make two errors, can't we? One error is that we make the devil too big. The other error is that we make the devil too small. My concern is if you observe Christian in their behavior to trouble and trial and tribulation, most times they act practically like atheists. You know, the first response is to get onto Facebook rather than to pray. Yeah, understand? You know, that, that's, that's what you expect someone in the world to do, but someone who knows who they are in Christ, who has a dynamic relationship with their Father in heaven, their first thing is, dear Jesus, we need to pray here. You know, or the first time that the bill comes that they can't pay, you know, their first reaction is to panic and saying, it's all terrible, it's all horrible, we're going to go under, you know, let's jump off the Titanic instead of saying, we're going to tithe this week and we know God's going to come through. You, you hear what I'm saying? You know, we live practically as atheists and Christians in our head. But at the end of the day, your behavior determines what you believe. If you want to know what you really believe, watch what you do. Listen to your thoughts, listen to your fears, look at your anxieties, look at where your heart affection is, you'll know where you really sit. But we don't want to make those two extreme areas. That the truth is, is that it's somewhere in the middle. Next slide, thank you. So Paul trying to summarize this whole section, Ephesians 6 to 10 to 20. He says that we do not wrestle against blood and flesh. It's not about people. It's not the person you're married to. <laughs> it's not your boss. It's not even your pastor. It's not your leader. It's actually the forces behind those people that become substantially the issue in spiritual warfare. And Paul's main idea is this. We need God's power because we will face a variety of well-planned attacks from a supernatural enemy. There is someone out there that hates your guts. He loathes you. He wants to destroy you. And unless we walk around prepared for that, we may not win. God wants you to win. Hallelujah. God wants you to win. 
He really does. And he's given you the means and the tools. In fact, he's given you the weapons of warfare so that you can win. But if you go to battle unequipped, without your gun, without your body armor, your chances of winning are going to be pretty poor. Amen. Is that good? Is that true? You will be attacked. Turn to your neighbor and say you will be attacked. Don't want to be negative. I'm just telling you the truth. So are you going to be ready for the attack? I mean, Gary had a lousy week this week. He had an absolutely lousy week. But I would expect that. Absolutely expect that, believing what was going on. You know, uh, Southside Care had two staff to run the whole organisation on Friday. Sickness and troubles and circumstances and things like that. And we're feeding the poor. I expect that. And we get ourselves all stewed up, our knickers in a twist. Oops, are you allowed to say that in church? We get ourselves all stewed up and anxious because sometimes we don't realise it's not flesh and blood. It's principalities and powers. It's evil forces. You will be attacked. So what do you do? Well, first of all, you've got to learn some things. And last week particularly, next slide, we discovered a revelation that most people don't understand, which is spiritual warfare is something that we do together. Spiritual warfare is not Lone Ranger stuff. It is actually, Sam's coming to help me. I'm jiggling the wrong way. Actually, don't. It's going to affect you. It's going to affect your wife. It's going to affect your kids. It's going to affect your street. It's life and death. I hate the devil. I'm sorry. I hate the devil. You know, at one level, I could say, devil, take me on, please. I'll, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you what for. Take me on, but leave my kids alone, please. You know, I, I hate the devil. You know, give me sickness. I have faith and I'll fight it and I'll believe God for a great outcome. But when he attacks my loved ones, when he attacks my church, I hate the devil. I want to put him under my foot. And I want to apply some pressure to his head and see him defeated. And he is defeated, but God has chosen to use you and me to apply the pressure. To apply the pressure. We don't want to let that little snake run around. You know, it's, I mean, I've got to, I better stay for notes. But this is amazing. You know, when, when we're moving from the, the old building in Forest Road to this particular building, we hit all sorts of problems that are absolutely bizarre, weird, and all the rest. I mean, crazy things. And in the middle of all this, I mean, I had a man who was in leadership of our church come and ba- actually come down to the office and pounded on my door to beat me up on one stage. I mean, I'm te- I haven't told you everything that's ever happened because it's not appropriate, but that occurred. And in the middle of all this craziness, um, Pastor Dave Reed, and bless him, came out and said, Mike, there's a snake trying to get into the church. I thought he just had some sort of a revelation. It was a word of knowledge, you know, a prophecy. Um, but no, there was actually a snake trying to get into the church. Took me out there, and there's about a 
Oh, look, we always say a six-foot Jew guy, but it was probably about a five-foot Jew guy. He was a big fella. And he's on the verge there, on the, gra- on the grass, and he's literally trying to... Ho- he's probably running away from the sun or the road or whatever, but he's determined to enter into the church. And I've got a broom, and I'm trying to sweep away this snake. And it keeps on coming back, and I try to sweep away this snake. Now, I want to tell you, my mind and my spirit is very alert to what's going on there. I'm saying, God, what are you saying in all this and stuff? Anyway, we got the reptile farm to come pick him up, and he lived ever happily ever after to tell the story. But yeah, it's incredible. But one of the things we've got to realize is that spiritual warfare is a group activity. We are meant to stand together. It's okay to have up the shield of faith, but if you're not walking together an army in rank and in divine order, you're one soldier by itself, and I wish you luck. I do. So it's not for Lone Rangers. Next one. Do you want to come to boot camp? You know, this is, this is serious business. You know, you're a fool. Oh, I'm being a bit blunt today. You are a really nice person who's in need of some education. If you say that you want to be ready for spiritual warfare and yet not prepare for it. You know, if you want to get on an aeroplane now and go fight the Taliban, you, 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 you know, you should do some training, some preparation first. And so we don't want to be unwise, we don't want to be foolish, but we want to invite you into a place where as a church we're training and we're developing to spiritual warfare. And I think we're getting there. I think there's actually, we're actually getting more than the sermons. We're actually getting the sermon and the change and the application, which is fantastic. And last, uh, last week, or the week before that, we spoke about the belt of truth. Thanks, guys. Next slide. So there's my little sword. My, my little sword there's a very little one the belt troop it's the first piece of armor that's placed on because that is what girds the body that's your balance so you're meant to have truth in your inner core in the center of your being biblical objective truth should be center in your belly in that inner region and that's what everything hangs off So all the other pieces of the army are attached to the belt of truth. So unless you have truth, you've got nothing to connect it to. Unless you know what God says, it stands written as what Jesus said to actually resist the devil. When the devil came to tempt him, he says, no, it stands written. It stands written. This is what the Bible says. Unless you know that, then you've only got opinions and feelings. Do you know that's so important that the core Your center of balance has to be truth. And you're going to ask the question, scholars, academics look at this, and it also applies to the uh, breast of righteousness, which is why I'm touching on it again. Are we talking about an external, objective standard of truth? Or are we talking about my internal response to truth, experientially? Are we talking about some external form of righteousness that stands outside of me, or are we talking about my own personal righteousness? It's, it's different, isn't it? And I know this might stretch you a little bit in your thinking and your revelation, but if you can actually get this, it will really will help you. It's actually probably both. You know, a good politician would say, you know, you're going to do this or that, and you will say just yes and stuff. But principally... Most of what the Bible suggests and the, and the scholars would suggest here, it's about the objective standard of truth. Sometimes the reason why you don't steal is not because you don't have 
the feeling that I don't want to steal, it's because you know that it's wrong to steal. You know that God, by revelation, says it's wrong. The reason why you don't sleep around is not because you don't feel like sleeping around. It's because there is an objective standard that you do not sleep around. Amen? Amen. The reason why you don't look at pornography is not because you don't want to look at pornography. It's because there's an objective standard. It's wrong. And that's a fundamental part of spiritual warfare. Unless you are living in truth, understanding the truth, you are setting yourself up as a target for the devil to have a go at you because he knows the footholds in your life. So we not to give a foothold. So now we're going to talk about this next piece of it. But before we do that, uh, next slide, thank you. They recently did a survey in America to find out the basic uh, sort of like persona that they believe God was. You know, do you think God's sort of like a boss? Do you think God's a Father Christmas? Do you think God's, you know, who do you think God is? They asked a whole range of questions about, do you think he's angry? Do you think he's loving? Do you think he's these sorts of things? Asked all these sorts of questions, and they came up that most people in the Western world think of God as a butler, a waiter, and a butler or a waiter is someone that doesn't have a lot to do in your life, but they just stand there at the side for when you need something. And when you need something, you say, butler, I need my uh, double chai latte espresso extreme. And the butler, if he's a good butler, will come and bring you the thing. And then he goes again. That is the overall world view in the Western world of who God is. Someone that you ignore until you need something. Now, most Christians, though, today in the Western world, so that's, the, that's those people outside of God, okay? Most Christians actually treat God a bit more like an employer. An employer who has someone has the right to speak into your life, to make certain demands upon your life and your energy, but the employee always has the right to withdraw their labor. Do you understand? So the boss can say, I want you to start here at 8 o'clock. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. But ultimately, the employer is always asking the question, is this something that I want to do? Is this something that really enhances my life? Is this fair? Is it not fair? And if it's really not fair and I don't think this is a good place to work, what they do is they withdraw their labor. And that's the way most Christians serve today, is that they actually serve on the basis I will serve conditionally. I'll be connected to the church conditionally. You meet my conditions, pastor. If, I, if you go through and you meet sufficient of my conditions, then I will serve. Does it sound about right? It actually sounds about right. However, when we come to spiritual warfare, what's involved if you are in spiritual warfare and we're taking on the whole analogy and picture language of armor and soldier. Where, what does God become when you're in armor? He becomes your commander in chief. Now, do soldiers get to choose when they go to war? Do soldiers get to choose where they stand in the ranks? Do soldiers get to choose? No. So one of the incredible revelations that we need to grasp, in order to be victorious... 
you actually have to embrace your God, not just as benefactor and is a wonderful blesser, not just as healer and is a wonderful healer, just not as Savior and is an amazing, wonderful Savior. But you also have to embrace him as the Lord of armies, the commander in chief, the divine warrior who comes one day to judge the earth and to bring righteousness. And then you stand up and you say, yes, Jesus, God's got an army marching through the land. Deliverance is their song, healing in their hand, everlasting joy and gladness in their heart. And in this army, I've got a part. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And then you used to do the planes and all that sort of stuff. Hey, it's truth. We've thrown away the song. And sadly, we've thrown away the revelation that went with that. If you understand spiritual warfare, that there are evil, nasty, rotten scorpions and snakes and slugs and beasties out there that want to destroy you, want to take out your kids, put disease on your body, then if you know that, and you know that there's a God in heaven that says, here's armor for you, here's victory for you, but stand together and learn what it is to know that God is your commander and say, yes, sir. I'm going to be in the army of God. I'm going to, land, I'm going to stand in line. So, next slide. Thank you. Okay, let's just uh, read this together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled about your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. So I'm just going to hopefully try and teach you Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. So what I'm going to do is say, finally be strong. Finally be strong. Finally be strong. And in His. Finally be. And in His. Finally be. And in His. Ephesians chapter. We've come a long way from the days when I first got saved. Where you would learn Scripture. You'd memorize it and you'd make it incarnate. You'd place it in flesh and blood. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 says, Be strong in the... And in his... Fantastic. You're doing really well. Thank you. All right. Let's look a little bit about this uh, body of armor of righteousness. The, the uh, Roman soldiers... Next slide, thanks. Armor um, would cover the soldier... Uh, the, shoulder, the soldiers... The shoulders, uh, down to the abominable area. The Greek word is thorax. If you did any uh, biology, you'd understand that's the 
the hard place around the beetle and the insect and stuff, the thorax. And of course, primarily, what it's doing is it's protecting the vital organs, particularly the heart. You know, you can lose an arm and probably survive. You can lose, you know, you can take damage to your legs and all sorts of things and you can survive. But a wound to your heart is fatal. Your heart is so essential to your well-being. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. The message says, that's where life starts. Your heart is so important, my friend. Your heart will determine, another version puts it as, the boundaries of your life. The bigness of your life, the blessing in your life comes out of your heart. Jesus said that all the bad stuff comes out of the heart as well. It's out of the heart comes the evil, but out of the heart, a well-protected heart, a well-nurtured heart is the wellspring of life. So it's an important, vital part. So what do you need to have? Protecting the heart, it's the breastplate of righteousness. Say righteousness. So God has designed some armor specifically to protect the heart. The heart is the vital organ. It's the place that all of life flows, and he's given a specific piece of armor. It is not the breastplate of truth. It's not the breastplate of joy. It's not the breastplate of peace. It's the breastplate of righteousness. You're doing good today. You're helping me. Thank you. It's the breastplate of Fantastic. Next slide. So Satan, as a name, literally means accuser. In fact, it's not his name. He's just called the grumbler, the complainer, the whinger. He actually doesn't have a name. He's just a whinger. Here comes the whinger again. Here comes the complainer. I've been to churches where I think there's got lots of Satans in them. (laughs) Grumblers, complainers, whingers, critics, accusers. Accusers of the brethren. Apparently he spends 24 hours of his day, which means he's pretty busy not to do a lot of else, just telling God how bad I am. That's, that's, what the, that's what the book of Revelation says. He stands before the throne of God accusing the brethren 24 hours a day. He's no good. He's lousy. You don't know how much sin's in him and stuff. And you know, most times I've got to say, devil, you're right. You know, you're right. You're right. But that doesn't stop there. So he's literally accused the adversary, the opposer. And then we come into this question, is this breastplate of righteousness talking about my personal integrity in order for me to succeed when I'm going into that room to cast out the devil? Um, Rebecca Kittler, that vacuum thing. You know, she's got a video if you want to have a fun thing. That's, that's so funny. And, uh, but, you know, you're going in there to do that exorcism thing. You know, do I go in there to face those demons on the basis, dear Jesus, I am so happy that I'm strong in you, that I haven't done any sin this week, I haven't had a bad thought, I've been kind to my wife, I've been generous, I haven't lost my temper, I've not done... So I am so righteous that the devil has no hold over me. I, I, I can go in. Is that how you go in? Or do you go in on the basis of God, I know that I am a sinner, but I receive from you the righteousness of Jesus. I place his righteousness over my heart 
and I go in there on the merits of Jesus. It's a different deal, isn't it? But I think it's very significant that you at least start with the objective truth that you have the righteousness of God. Paul knew about self-righteousness. He said that I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was a religious man after a religious man. I mean, I kept all the law. I studied from a little child at the feet of the best scholars. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I would circumcise any man that moved. Yikes. That's what he was. And then he says all that righteousness was as filthy rags. Absolutely filthy rags. Christianity... Most people don't understand. There are people here today who have yet to have this revelation. Dear Holy Spirit, help us. Christianity is not about living a good moral life and presenting that to God. Here's Mike. He's a good man. Teaches at the Bible College. You know, he's done some church planning. He's grown a couple of good churches. You know, he's written some good books. You know, here, here's Mike. That's religion. Christianity is about going to God and accepting His righteousness. I don't deserve this, God, but you have provided the gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ. And then appropriating that as yours. It's one thing to grasp it here. It's another thing to put it on as armor over your heart. Hebrews talks about the heart that condemns us. Does anybody have a heart that condemns you? You go to prayer and all of a sudden these voices come in your head saying you're lousy. You're never going to make it. I know what you did last week. You know, all of a sudden pornographic images start to shout at you and you want to kill your mother and you want to kill yourself. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? How the heart will condemn. But Hebrews says that the blood of Jesus can cleanse away the heart. So that we can stand boldly in his presence, that we might obtain favor in the hour of need. Hallelujah. You know, if you're struggling with sin, you know what you can do? You can go to God and he's going to help you in your time of need. You will find favor. No matter how dirty your clothes, no matter how smelly you are, you could have come from the deepest pig pen of life. But Jesus threw open the door and you can go into the throne room and God is there to help you. He's going to help you. This is the objective reality. Rightness. I'm just throwing away the word righteousness for this minute just to help us understand. Rightness is given to us by God. It's not earned. We are either driven to get God's approval or we receive it and we're forgiven. Some people here today, sadly, think that God disapproves of them. You've just got this low-level thing. I don't really measure up to God. I'm aware of all my failures and all my shortcomings and I really don't think God likes me. Well, that's the devil. God loves you. He really does love you. Yet she likes you too. He thinks you're pretty neat. He thinks you're fantastic. And he wants to bring you home. Take you home. So next slide, thank you. 
So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21, Jason preached on this on Friday night. But listen how the Living Bible puts it. For God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. Then in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. Religion's about change. Christianity is about exchange. <laughs> exchange. So here we are. All Mike's muck. And Mike had lots of muck. And he still has lots of muck. But God took Mike's muck and he placed it into Jesus and he killed Jesus. So the muck got destroyed at exactly the same time. But God was so moved by his son's sacrifice that his son had done so good. Yeah. He'd done so good in being the lamb that was slain that he took that goodness and he gave it back to me. Oh, hallelujah. I now got his goodness. It's not my goodness, but he gave me all the goodness in Jesus. Who thinks Jesus was good? Who thinks he lived a great life, a righteous life? Well, he's now given it to you and me. And we, if we want to be successful in spiritual warfare, we've got to put that over our heart. Because otherwise, if we've got a condemning heart that's always looking about where we messed up and where we failed, we will never be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We won't put on the armor. We'll go out half clothed, understanding that at any moment, the enemy can come and lie to you. You don't deserve to be healed. Who do you think you are? You don't deserve to have financial breakthrough. Who do you think you are? But as we understand it, okay, it's not about me. I did mess up. But I know who Jesus is, and I know what he did, and I know that his righteousness is unlimited. Sin is simply a lie that's believed. That's all it is. See, if you are the righteousness of God in Christ, that's what the Bible says, then what, how could you sin? So think about it. If you are all of God's goodness and it's been given to you, how could you sin? There's only one way. Same the way that maybe the Micklebirds, well, they got let out, but someone got a lot of gold by a lie. It's only by a lie. You see, evil is simply the absence of good in the same way that cold is the absence of heat. It has no life of itself. It is simply the removal, the stepping back of righteousness and of goodness. When God, if God was fully here, there would be no evil. Yeah? If God was fully in my life, there would be no evil, would there? The only place where evil can exist is where we shrink back and we neglect the righteousness that God's given us. Can you see what an incredible, powerful tool this breastplate is? You're wearing this breastplate. You can fire anything you like at me because I know those bullets aren't going to get through because it's powerful and it's strong. In Romans chapter 13, verse 12, the Bible says, The night is nearly over. The day is almost there. So let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. You see, it's light. And so Christianity, really understanding this, following after Jesus passionately, is about seeing the light. Yeah. I want to tell you, you could have the best eye in the world. 
You could have all the optic nerves connected. Your retina could be there, all the cones are there. But if the lights are down, you can't see anything. You can't see a thing. Then someone turns on the light, you see things. And that's what Revelation is about, God turning on the light. And then when we see the light, every one of us then have the choice of whether we move towards the light or we move away from the light. As we move towards the light, there is no darkness and there is no shadow. But the moment we make a choice to walk away from the light, immediately we're walking in shadow. We're walking in darkness. And the further we go, the darker it will become. God wants us to turn and embrace the light. Walk in the light as he is in the light, as we have fellowship one with another. In Isaiah chapter 54, it talks about this. To God's people, in righteousness, you will be established. How are you going to be established? In righteousness. Tyranny will be far from you and you will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone attacks you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and tongues and forges a weapon fit for its work. It is I who created the destroyer to work havoc. No weapon formed against you will prevail and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is a heritage of the servants of the Lord and this is their vindication, their righteousness from me declares the Lord. Hallelujah. That's powerful. We can walk in God's righteousness. So next slide, we're almost finished. Again, I think we've got to appropriate the truth ob objectively and then walk in it. It's fruit to the fruit. So as we embrace righteousness as something God's given to me, all of a sudden I can be righteous. I can be integral. I begin to make better decisions. I begin to walk in truth. But if I try to be truthful without having the truth, I go into religion so easily. You slip into a whole new dynamic and stuff. Integrity is the fruit of the root of righteousness. The word integer, from where we get the word integrity, means a whole number, if you remember your math, not a fraction. So what God wants us to do is to have an integral heart, which means that we're wholehearted. Say wholehearted. Not perfect. I'm so glad that I don't have to be perfect because I want to confess I'm very close. No, no. I, I'm not perfect. My wife's nodding over there. <laughs> she knows the truth. I'm so happy I don't have to be perfect. I fail. Sadly, I fail my God every week. Don't pray as I should. Don't have all the attitudes that I should. I fail every day to do what God wants me to do. But I can be wholehearted. My heart can be fully towards God, not divided, but a heart after God. And that is the power then to grow. Never stand in your own integrity. Stand in God's integrity. You know, I was, I was thinking of getting a really nice coat for someone, but this is the best I could do. You know, one of the clear metaphors that God uses to describe the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast. And he says, everybody's invited to the wedding feast, but 
you've got to come on with wedding clothes. Could you imagine going to a wedding in your overalls? You know, you've been, I don't know, working on the car, you've got grease and, or, you know, cleaning out the pig pen or something, or you've been, you know, you know, just, you're meant to come dressed up, aren't you? And the incredible thing is if you come to God's party, if you're invited to the wedding, you know what God will do? At the door, he's standing there and says, I'm going to give you the right clothes to wear. You don't have to buy your own. No, you know what is? No matter how good I am, no matter how wealthy I am, I cannot buy something good enough for the king's presence. It's not good enough. It doesn't matter how good that cut is. But what he will do is he's going to say, here you go. This is the best I don't know. What was that coat you bought in Italy all those years ago, Steve? It was an Armani, wasn't it? Stuff, yeah. Kelvin Klein, was it? It was good, good gear, eh? So, now here's your best Kelvin Klein. And he says, I give it to you. Now, what if we say to God, thank you, but I, I don't really want to wear it. I want to go and use my own stuff, thank you. Particularly if that's Jesus' coat. And Jesus paid a lot to give us that coat. He's going to say, I don't want you to come to the world. So what we have to do is put on Jesus' righteousness. We've got to say, Jesus, you have made me right by giving me the means and the ability to go through that. So never go in your own integrity. And finally, last slide. Condemnation versus conviction. Godly repentance leads to change, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. What a fantastic passage. You know the difference between godly sorrow, condemnation and conviction? A lot of Christians haven't figured it out yet. It's different. One is the major tool of the enemy to destroy us, and the other one is the major tool of the Holy Spirit to change us. It's a big thing. If you get those mixed up, you're going to be in a bad place, aren't you? The major tool of the devil is condemnation. It's a sorrow that leads to death. But what godly sorrow will produce in you is earnestness, eagerness. To clear yourselves, indignation, alarm, longing, concern, what readiness to see justice done. It produces something else. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Warfare's about standing. And there's a place for you to stand by faith. There's a place for you to stand. And it's in his armor. It's the armor of? It's the armor of? It's God's armor. Put God's armor on, not your armor. Put on God's righteousness, not your righteousness. It's the armor of God. And as we do that, you will see victory come in a powerful way. Let me quickly explain to you, very quickly, the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction tells you what you have done wrong. And it will also tell you what you need to do to be free. It can be a fairly acute pain. You know, it can go, ouch. But it's always filled with hope for you. 
it has God's approval and says God's means of growing you. That's conviction. It talks about what you've done and what you need to do to fix it. I lost my wife. I lost my wife. No. I lost my temper with my wife. Oh, dear God. That's what I've done. That's conviction. And then immediately the Holy Spirit will say, you need to go apologize. And I'll say, well, who does she think she is? She didn't apologize to me. (laughs) Conviction will tell you what you've done and what you need to do. Yeah, then you have to wrestle sometimes of am I going to obey or not. But conviction is about what you've done and what you need to do. And God tells you, if you'll do it, you'll be free. Fantastic. There's no com- Now, the difference is with condemnation, it talks about who you are. It says that you're no good. You're a rotten little sinner. I knew you would never make it. Who do you think you are? You can never be free of this. You rotten little slob. You know, you were born with a temper. You're going to die with a temper. And it's got this self-loathing to it. And there's no way out. A person who's caught in condemnation will be going to God over and over again saying, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. God knows you're sorry. And he wants you to get off your royal backside and your blessed assurance and put the word of God into operation. Get some gumption up. Take up the sword of the spirit. Put on some belt of truth. Put on the armor of righteousness because he makes you right. And go out there and win the battle. You can win the battle. Who said you can't? So there's a difference. The voice of the accuser dominates rather than the voice of the Saviour. We find the devil will always talk about our sin and the the Holy Spirit will always talk about our Saviour. We'll either be dominated by sin consciousness or Saviour consciousness. There are churches that specialise in making you aware about your sin. There are churches that specialise, hopefully, in making you aware about your Saviour. You know, many years ago, in this church, had someone did a communion message. And uh, the communion message went like this. I want you all to bow your heads, close your eyes. You all know you've been a sinner this week. And you've all been speeding, I know. It's breaking the law. And if we now drink of the Lord's blood and eat of his body unworthily, not confessing our sin, we are going to get sick and die because you've sped. I'm, I tell you what, I didn't take communion that week. <laughs> it sounds almost right, but that's what God came to destroy. The barrier between my unworthiness and his worthiness, the barrier between my failure and his success, the barrier between my sin and his righteousness, the barrier, that temple curtain got torn from top to bottom. And he says, come home, Mike, come home. You know, his arms are wide open to embrace you. He's got the clothes for you to wear. He's got the armor for you to wear. 
But if we'll just believe the lies of the enemy, you know, good, you don't deserve this. Hey, you know, who watched the royal wedding? Prince Mary or whatever it was? What was her name? Kate. Prince Kate. Prince Catherine. Princess Catherine. I watch a lot of TV, as you can tell. Uh, but I believe she had this beautiful dress on. Was it nice, girls? Was it all right? Shani would know. It was past the... Yeah. This beautiful dress and stuff. I don't know what it costs. May I, would you have any idea how much a dress like that would cost? About $15,000. What if she went up to Prince Willie? Prince Willie. <laughs> Prince Billy. What if she went up to Prince Hey, I'm just an Australian from Tasmania. <laughs> I'm a Tasmanian. <laughs> I don't... I, I, help me, dear Jesus. <laughs> I don't watch a lot of TV, do I? <laughs> I didn't watch it. I'm thinking of Mary. Let's say the Danish one came from Tasmania, just for the story. <laughs> Thanks for the money. <laughs> oh, dear Jesus. I am trying to reinvent myself as a preacher and stuff, so... Go back to the drawing board, says Gerica. Well, let's, let's assume there was this princess in a land far, far away. <laughs> um, an Eskimo princess. <laughs> and the prince loved her so much that he bought her the most expensive wedding dress you could possibly believe. I mean, 15000 actually seems like, I mean, being a royal, he should be able to spend much more than that, couldn't he? He went down, brought it from Good Sam's. So, this beautiful dress. I mean, I don't know. Let's say it was made out of diamonds and sapphires and rubies. And it was just the most amazing thing. And then the bride comes to the, uh, to the groom, to the bridegroom. And she says, look, I know you love me, but I really can't wear this. I don't deserve it. We know she doesn't deserve it. But love, but love covers. Love buys the gift, provides the way to come into relationship. Put it on, guys. Put it on. Don't you dare think you're no good. Don't you dare think that you can't win. Don't you dare think that you're anything else apart from the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Condemnation focuses on who you are and is deceptive and repetitive. It's the dull ache that doesn't go away. Dear Father, let's just stand, shall we, in God's presence. We're going to dismiss you. And I just want to pray, uh, you know, particularly for those you know, I think there are those here today that you've really struggled with this. Uh, you would not be human if you did not have some element of the struggle between the fact that you know that you mess up and the fact that God doesn't like it and how you move forward. But condemnation will stop you from growing, will stop you being successful, will stop you being victorious. And so... Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters here right now, Lord. I thank you for their patience, their alertness, Lord, engaging with me, Lord, that we could get the message across, Lord. I thank you for that. And dear God, I pray right now, just raise your hands to God. Just make a little funnel to receive right now. 
Put yourself just in that, that spiritual receptive mode that you can, you know, you just put it into gear. God, listen, I'm listening to you now. I'm listening to you, Holy Spirit. Lord, I want you now to deal with my sense of worthiness. Lord, I want you to speak and give me a revelation. I need my heart to be protected against the conscience that keeps on coming and condemning me, Lord. Father, right now I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would appropriate the spilt blood of Jesus, that we would appropriate his life poured out for us, that we would put on Jesus, that we'd put on his righteousness, Lord, that we'd receive that gift. And look, it might just help you, my friends, if you'll just picture God in front of you right now just holding out the most amazing suit or the most amazing dress. And it's supernatural. It shines. It's full of light. There's not a stain on it. There's not a blemish on it. It fits you perfectly. And your heavenly Father saying, please, will you wear this? Will you wear it for Jesus' sake? Will you wear it? My son paid a high price for this, that you could wear this and hold your head up high to live in victory, to walk around and people would know that you are a child of the King. That's evident by what you're wearing, by the demeanor, by the character, by the way you live, that you're living a life that's pure and of holy. Father, I pray in Jesus' mighty name that, Lord, you'd release us from any sense of bondage to condemnation. Father, we declare that there is now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. And to this morning, Lord, we locate ourselves in Jesus and in His righteousness. And everybody said, Amen. 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 God bless you. We're going to sing that song just to close with our stand. And... Uh,